So people sometimes take this approach of blitz scaling is always good. Just blitz scale everything. It's a magic pixie dust. And that's not actually what we say. What we tell people is there is a very specific set of circumstances under which blitz scaling makes sense. Welcome to the B2B Lead Gen Podcast, your weekly audio masterclass on converting leads to revenue. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman, author of The Digital Pivot. Let's do this. Chris Yeh is the co-author of Blitzscaling, a book about prioritizing speed over efficiency in the face of uncertainty. It's my favorite growth marketing book, and I've read most of the books out there on that topic. He wrote it with Reid Hoffman, and the book explains how companies like Amazon, Airbnb, and Uber use a very specific set of offensive competitive strategies that prioritize speed over profitability to achieve massive scale at incredible speed. Chris, welcome to the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. Thank you, Eric. That may have been the best summary I've ever heard a host give of the book. That was outstanding. Well, they were your words. Um, I I absolutely dog-eared and highlighted something on every page. It's my go-to, and I'm constantly flipping back to it when I want to really say something concisely that you guys took the time to say better than me. So um, that was your language. Um, Chris has had a ringside seat in the world of startups and scale-ups. He's a writer, investor, and entrepreneur. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about blitz scaling, growth marketing strategy, Uber, Jeff Bezos, and much more. Stay with us. Chris, your book, Blitz Scaling, is so packed with actionable, useful guidance for startups who are swinging for the fences. But before we dive into the book, because I highlighted something on almost every page, as I told you, how did you come to write a book with LinkedIn founder, Reid Hoffman? Well, there's a question that people sometimes ask me, which is, Chris, how do you know so many rich and famous people? And I tell them the answer is I knew them before they were rich and famous. So Reid and I actually met during the very earliest days of LinkedIn, right after it launched. We had obviously shared some of the similar backgrounds. We were both Stanford alums, although we did not overlap. We both did some of the same programs while we were at Stanford, but we really met when LinkedIn first launched. And when it launched, I was very excited because I was following the social networking space very closely. It turns out that Reed actually had a previous company prior to LinkedIn called SocialNet during the dot-com boom that was one of the very first social networks. It didn't work out, but I was one of the few people who actually signed up for it because this is something that's always interested me. So when LinkedIn came out and I saw that somebody had finally created a professional social network, I was very excited. I saw the founders were fellow Stanford alum and I reached out to them and began talking with them, giving them my unsolicited suggestions and advice. Who knows whether they were appreciated or not, but that's how I got to know Reed. 
And the time we very first time we met in person was when I organized an event for Harvard Business School alumni to learn about LinkedIn. This was in the day when Harvard Business School alumni had no idea what LinkedIn was. And Reed actually came and had an audience of about 200 people and spoke and talked about why social networking was going to be so important for them. And we just stayed in touch ever since. We'd co-invested on some deals. And then years and years later, when Reed and our other friend Ben Kaznoka had just finished their book, The Startup of You, they asked me to come in and see them. And I said, well, of course, I'm always happy to see my friends. And they said, well, you know, The Startup of You is doing well. I'm like, yes, I'm very glad I mentioned in the book. So your success is my success. I'm very happy about that. And they said, yes, well, we're thinking about writing more on this topic, but we'd love to see if you'd be willing to come in and, and collaborate with us. And I'm like, wow. That was not what I expected when I got called to that meeting. And so I said, I just have one question. What's that? Is my name on the cover of whatever we produce? And they said, well, of course, we're looking for someone who's a collaborator, not a ghostwriter. I said, fantastic, I'm in. And that's how it all got started. It was because both Ben and Reed knew that I was one of the fastest writers in the world. And they thought since I was an old friend of theirs that we would work well together. And fortunately, they were correct. I'll tell you, man, it's a great book. It's so well-written, great stories and interesting. I actually thought when I was reading it that you must be a New York Times writer. Well, I do actually have a degree in creative writing from Stanford University. I was a member of the English department and creative writing department. And I did write and do various forms of journalism for some time, but never at the New York Times, maybe someday. Okay, so Chris, what is blitzscaling? So blitzscaling is what we use to describe the technique of prioritizing speed over efficiency, which includes profitability. And the big question is, when should you blitzscale? So people sometimes take this approach of blitzscaling is always good. Just blitzscale everything. It's a magic pixie dust. And that's not actually what we say. What we tell people is there is a very specific set of circumstances under which blitzscaling makes sense. You need to be going after a valuable winner-take-most market. Because if you win a winner-take-most market, if you beat your competition to achieve critical scale and become an enduring market leader, then you have a business that's going to last decades and allow you to make a colossal amount of money and have a huge impact. So the key to blitzscaling is knowing when to apply this incredibly powerful technique. And so you have to be honest with yourself about what you're trying to do and say, is this in fact a winner take most market? Do I have a way to scale this company more quickly than my competitors? And if so, then blitzscaling may be appropriate. So what is the significance of so-called network effects in blitzscaling? Yes. So network effects are one of the main reasons that you might have a winner-take-most market. So the interesting thing about network effects is that people often have the wrong thing in mind when they hear the word network effects. So when people say network effects, I, I'll speak to an audience. I'll say, well, can somebody tell me what a network effect is? And, and an audience member will raise their hand and say, well, that's when there's word of mouth and the users you bring in bring in other users. And I say, well, that's a good answer, but that's virality. And people often confuse virality with network effects. Both of them are very important for blitzscaling, but they confuse virality with network effects because virality takes place by leveraging the network. But the network effect actually means that as the number of members in the network grows, so as the number of customers or users of the products grows, then the value of the network to each individual user or customer increases. 
Now, that's a very subtle thing. It sounds very simple, but it actually has some significant implications. The first is that because you're multiplying the added the increasing value per user by an increasing number of users, now you're talking about exponential growth of value. And that's how these companies grow so valuable so quickly. That exponential growth of value drives that value very quickly into the billions and tens of billions and hundreds of billions. But the other key thing is as the value of the network to the individual increases, you eventually get to the point where you lock in permanent market leadership. And that's because if you get to a certain point and the network effects are strong, a competitor can come into the marketplace, clone your product exactly, offer it to the market for free, and still not get any traction. And that's because the majority of the value is now coming from the network, not from the product itself. And that's how you're able to maintain that sustainable success over decades. The example I always give of network effects is if you look at Craigslist, which is a product that has not changed since 1996, the power of the network effects implicit in Craigslist mean that that business still generates a billion dollars a year in cash. So while you may not necessarily feel like you're going to take 20 plus years off and not change your product during that time, wouldn't it be nice to have that option? What is the difference between fast scaling and blitz scaling? So fast scaling is one of the forms of scaling that people are more familiar with. It's a term we made up, but we think it really applies here. And what fast scaling means is it's aggressive growth when you have certainty. So a lot of times people say, oh, I'm going to blitz scale. I know the formula. I can turn the crank on my customer acquisition and now everything's going to work out. And we tell them, well, that's not technically blitz scaling in some sense because you have waited until you have full certainty and if you have full certainty your competitors may also have full certainty and they may already be scaling and so fast scaling absolutely has a place when you achieve a situation where you have certainty around how to achieve growth in the marketplace you absolutely should fast scale and what that means is prioritizing speed over efficiency but in an environment of certainty and that's an environment where any number of financiers are going to be willing to give you money because they can see it's a sure thing. Blitz scaling is tougher because it's not a sure thing. There is uncertainty. You might not succeed. And that makes it harder for you as an entrepreneur, but it also makes it harder to get the money from investors, which is why having investors who understand the power of blitz scaling becomes so important. As a founder, it seems like blitz scaling is really only an option if you've got other people's money. So it would seem that way. It's not necessarily the case, but mostly that's true. There are a few exceptions. So a couple of exceptions include the very rare case, as exemplified by Google, where you discover a revenue model that is so enormously profitable that you can just fund your growth. Google only raised money once. And then after that, when they figured out how to actually monetize their search traffic, they never had to raise money again because it was just a gusher of cash. Now, that's not something that most people can really count on. So the other way that you can blitz scale without a huge amount of other people's money is if you find ways to leverage partners. So we talk a lot about the importance of being able to leverage other people's distribution networks. A lot of people think that blitz scaling means raising a lot of money and spending on an advertising. Well, okay. You know, that is one way to drive growth, but it's not a differentiated way. It just means that whoever has the biggest checkbook is going to grow the fastest. And that doesn't necessarily mean there's any sustainable success. But 
if you are really clever about achieving distribution, finding a way to ride on top of an existing network, then you can grow without spending a lot of money. So take the example of Facebook. Facebook grew very rapidly by riding on top of an existing social network that's called the US college and university system. And Facebook would go from college to college, starting with Mark Zuckerberg's alma mater, Harvard University, and grow from there. And they would launch in a particular college or university when the number of people requesting Facebook had gotten up above half the student population. And this was something where it's not like Facebook paid the colleges or universities. It's not like Facebook was paying the users who were going on the wait list, but it was leveraging an existing network in a clever way that allowed it to grow without spending its own money. Out of control growth, Uber's growth strategy, and Asian hate crime in the VC community. When we return, stay with us. We're talking to writer, investor, and entrepreneur Chris Yeh about his book, Blitzscaling, which he wrote with LinkedIn CEO Reid Hoffman. Chris, most companies strive for efficiency and certainty. What kinds of startups can afford to ignore efficiency? So when it comes to efficiency, the reason that you're going to blitz scale is largely because of the competition. So think about it. It's a winner take most market, which means there's going to be one winner. And if you let someone else win the market, it doesn't matter how efficient you've been, it doesn't matter how clever you've been, you're gonna lose out. This is why you see so many famous stories in the history of technology where perhaps there was a superior technology, but the one that got to scale first won. So whether that is VHS versus Betamax, Blu-ray versus HD, DVD, or even Microsoft Windows versus Macintosh, over and over again, we see the power of getting to scale first. And it doesn't mean that the best product wins, it means the best distribution wins. So that's the reason why entrepreneurs really need to be thinking about this. If they let their competitors beat them to critical scale, then it doesn't matter what else you do. Are companies that grow fast more likely to achieve unicorn status? I think by definition, the answer is yes. But companies that grow fast are also subject to a lot of problems, challenges, other things like that. Growth is not a pure unalloyed good. So the problems of growth, and you mentioned, for example, Uber, do come up. When you grow a company, you are being forced to refactor and rebuild the company on the fly all the time. One of the things we talk about in Blitzscaling is how we divide up companies into five different stages based on the size of organization. We call that the family stage, the tribal stage, the village stage, the city stage, and the nation stage. And the reason we use these units of human organization is they roughly correspond to the number of employees but they also instantly give you a sense of how these are very different from each other. A tribe is different from a family, a village is different from a tribe, a city is different from a village, and so on. And that means that the processes that you put in place, the way you ran things at one stage, don't translate to the next. And this means that the faster you grow, the quicker you have to go through transitions, and the quicker you have to go through transitions, the more difficult it is, just because it's hard for human beings to adjust quickly. You eventually reach a point of growth where you're scaling faster than human beings typically can. When Uber expands into new markets, how do they use blitz scaling to drive growth? 
So the key thing to know about the Uber playbook, and again, at this point, they're in most of the markets, but the way they went into various markets is they understood that it was a race to get to critical scale because the critical scale and the liquidity in the marketplace determines how long it takes for someone to hail a ride. So if you have two different competitors and you want to hail a ride, one gets you a car in three minutes and the other gets you a car in 20 minutes, which one are you going to use? You're going to use the one that gets you the car in three minutes. So you have to achieve liquidity to uh, win that market. Essentially, liquidity is the primary nature of the product. So in the case of Uber, when they went into a city and they had a whole rollout plan and rollout team, the objective was to get to critical scale as quickly as possible. And that meant heavy subsidization. So if you think about a two-sided marketplace, what you always have to do is you have to lock down the supply side of the equation first because if someone's looking for a ride, they go to Uber, they try to find a ride, they can't get one, they're going to say, this sucks, I'm not going to use it again. On the other hand, if you're on the demands, if you're on the supply side, you're the driver, if you turn on Uber and there's nobody there who's willing to pay you, you're just like, okay, I'm not doing anything for right now, but hopefully something else will come along. And in the case of Uber, what they did is they spent heavily to subsidize those rides. So the way you increase demand, just like classic supply and demand, is to reduce the cost. And so they would go ahead and they would pay the drivers, you know, 200 or 300% of what they were charging the riders. And that encouraged the riders to come into the system and it encouraged the drivers to stick on the system. And that is the kind of blitz scaling that you need to do if you're locked in a battle where you need to get the liquidity and reach critical scale first. Chris, what is the danger of out-of-control growth? Well, the danger of out-of-control growth is like out-of-control growth anywhere. We like to call out-of-control growth in organic creatures cancer. And you see why it happens. All of a sudden, if you're growing rapidly, all of your processes are breaking down. And if you're unable to actually fix those processes, they can sometimes choke the company. One of the great examples of this is Friendster. Friendster was the first mainstream social network to break through. And it was hugely popular and well-known. It was on the cover of every magazine. They were talking about it on late night television. It was the phenomenon. My friend Jonathan Abrams, who was the founder of the company, was actually, I think, on the cover of Time Magazine, and he was hailed as the next Bill Gates. And the question was, what to do about this? And the issue that they ran into was simply that the growth was killing the company. Due to some technology choices they'd made up front, the more people that came on to Friendster, the slower it got. And very rapidly, it got to the point where Friendster pages would take several minutes to load. Now, I don't know if you've ever sat around waiting several minutes for a web page to load. I'm pretty sure it would be the first time you did it. It would definitely be the first time I did it. So people abandoned the platform in droves, and that gave an opening for MySpace to come in, and then, of course, later on, Facebook. So the problems of growth are you have to manage growth. It could be infrastructure issues. It could be management issues. It could be government attention. All of these things bring potential problems, which you have to very quickly resolve. What was the infrastructure choice they made that choked them? So my understanding is that they were built originally on the Windows stack. And that was probably because that's who the founders were most familiar with. But that, at that point in time, which was the early 2000s, the Windows stack was not as appropriate for scaling as a more open source stack would have been. And so as a result, when they needed to scale, they couldn't scale as easily. They couldn't handle the, the volumes that, say, a Unix-based system could have. 
I made the same mistake on my first startup and we went with windows and we had to rebuild entirely on a lamp stack after we had some traction. Um, you know, we didn't have as much demand, but uh, it, it certainly uh, slowed down our growth significantly. Um, Chris, racially targeted violence against Asians is on the rise. Yes. Does racism show up in the VC community? And if so, how? So I think that racism in the VC community is something where you have to think about what is the definition of racism. And I think in people's minds, there are two different definitions of racism. And much of the disagreement we have in this country around the subject of racism boils down to people carrying different definitions in their mind. Definition one of racism is, I discriminate against people because of their background, or rather, I consciously discriminate against people because of their background. And most people would like to say that they're not racist. There may be a few people who will proudly say that they are. Fortunately, very few of them end up in the venture capital industry. So there is that. But then there is the other definition of racism, which is bias, conscious or not, that affects the decisions that you make. And I'm as subject to it as anyone else. So for example, if I am talking with various founders, I am looking for founders with similarities to me, not necessarily racial similarities, but other similarities. Like for example, I'm a proud alum of Stanford University, which is a great university. And there's data from first round capital that indicates that people from Stanford University tend to deliver better returns even. Well, that's wonderful, but that is bundled with the fact that the demographics of Stanford University do not match up with the demographics of the United States as a whole. So am I being racist if I say, you know, I really like working with Stanford alums? It's very understandable, but at the same time, it is also biased. So I think that very little of the type one racism exists in Silicon Valley, but there's plenty of the type two racism that exists in Silicon Valley. Again, people have good intentions, but they don't always recognize the biases that they have. Blitzscaling to satisfy growing demand, Jeff Bezos and investing in blitzscalers when we return. We're talking to best-selling author, investor, and entrepreneur, Chris Yeh, who wrote the book Blitzscaling with LinkedIn CEO, Reid Hoffman. Chris, let's talk about Amazon founder and CEO, Jeff Bezos, who's fond of saying, your margin is my opportunity. What does he mean? So Jeff is, of course, a genius. I generally refer to him as the greatest living business leader or CEO that we have today. He inherited the mantle from Steve Jobs after Steve Jobs passed away. And the thing that makes Jeff so enormously successful is his focus on the future. So when he says, your margin is my opportunity, what he means is that other people may choose to price their products in a way to maximize their margins today. That's focused on producing short-term profitability. But that also means there's an opportunity for Jeff to, instead of taking profits, invest more heavily in the future. And that's what Amazon has consistently done time and time again. And those investments pay off in the long run. So for example, Amazon created the entire ebook market by investing in the Kindle. Certainly the first edition of the Kindle was not particularly good. And I'm sure Amazon subsidized that hardware and it cost Amazon hundreds of millions of dollars to do that. But over time, what has happened? 
Amazon is the dominant platform for ebooks, and ebooks now outnumber print books in terms of sales. That is something that that long term investment that did not focus on margin, but rather focused on building up the long term strategic value brought to Amazon. Same holds true for Amazon Web Services. Many people would view the spending on infrastructure as a cost center and say, how do we spend as little on infrastructure as possible? Instead, Amazon said, how do we make our infrastructure as powerful as possible? And eventually, Amazon began renting it out in the form of Amazon Web Services starting in 2006. And obviously today, Amazon Web Services has launched an entire cloud computing revolution, and it is by far and away the leader in its field and contributes a huge amount of profitability to Amazon's bottom line. Those are both cases where at the very beginning, you would have said, wow, Amazon is foregoing margin. But that was in order to achieve and take advantage of a much bigger opportunity. So what you're saying is then they made less on the e-commerce side of the business in order to grow the infrastructure as a service business. Yes, among other things. So they made less of the e-commerce side is also fascinating. So the interesting thing about e-commerce and Amazon is if you think about it, there's not a lot of what we would call classical network effects involved in Amazon the core e-commerce business. It's a retailer. When's the last time you said a retailer had network effects? And yet Amazon has become utterly dominant. And it's because Amazon has found ways to create network effects where they didn't otherwise exist, to increase stickiness and to make itself the default uh, place where people buy things. When is the last time, Eric, that you went to buy something and you didn't start at Amazon? Well, um, I, I usually do start at Amazon. Let's see. When was the last time that I didn't start at Amazon? Recently, we did go shop. I went shopping for a pair of shoes, mm. and I wanted to be able to try them on. And we happened to have a New Balance store in Santa Monica, and the people who work there are pretty knowledgeable. And I wanted a specific shoe for a specific circumstance. So I did go to the store. But I, yeah, I do buy most of my stuff on Amazon. But just to respond to the network effect and the impact on Amazon, you know, Kai-Fu Lee in his book, um, AI Superpowers, writes, there's no data like more data. And if so, if AI is the future, certainly nobody can compete with the amount of data Amazon has about buyer preferences. Absolutely. So this is one of those fascinating things. The data argument is certainly a powerful effect of scale. It's just not a network effect. So when you gather more data, the fact that you have more data improves its value. But the value of that data tends to increase in a linear fashion rather than an exponential fashion. So there's a lot of economies of scale, a lot of returns to scale. And there's a reason why growth is something that everyone tends to focus on. But it's those exponential value creation mechanisms that justify blitzscaling. And gathering data tends not to be an exponential value creation mechanism, but it does tend to be a really powerful moat. Because if you have that data, then you are able to do more with it than anyone else. You're able to achieve things that other people cannot. And that is a core competitive advantage. Some people say that having too much business is a high-class problem. But as you write in the book, it's still a problem. How can companies design operational scalability into their business models? So I think upfront, people very much are tempted to say, well, we'll figure that out. We'll figure that out. And in fact, 
we encourage that to a certain extent. There is a very famous Reed Hoffman saying, which is, if you've launched, if you're not embarrassed by your first product launch, you've launched too late. And so we absolutely believe in the power of speed and the power of improvisation. However, there are core decisions that you make upfront that may make things very difficult to fix. And so that's why when we say you're planning for the future, you're trying to figure out things that will be impossible to fix at scale. Those things you actually need to do something for the long term upfront. And that may include things like choosing your particular technology stack to make sure that it is in fact scalable. But it's always a delicate balance because in most cases, the thing that you do today is something that you will throw away and completely refactor at the next stage of growth. So you have to distinguish between the things that are just for now and the things that are going to be a common thread throughout. And again, I think Amazon is a great example of this. One of the things that Amazon has done consistently and Google has done consistently as well is to invest heavily in tooling for their development environments, for how they actually make their products. It's very tempting to just focus on feature development, but focusing on operations, focusing on tooling can actually allow you to move more quickly and achieve more in the long run. So um, the, biz, the book Blitzscaling is really a guide for businesses that are looking to grow. But um, I, I would imagine you can take some of these strategies and apply them to different aspects of business like you know, this emerging area of growth marketing. Um, what is growth marketing? So for me, growth marketing represents the focus on a much more quantitative and scientific form of marketing. Those of us who are old school remember marketing as something that advertising agencies did. There would be these people who came in, they had these colorful ties and, you know, they, they didn't wear suits and they were a little different and offbeat. And that was how we thought of as marketing. But it turns out that the people who were actually doing the equivalent of growth marketing were the people who were the direct mail people who were figuring out how many letters to send out in order to get how, how many responses. And that kind of direct response, the ability to gather data based on the marketing that you do has now pervaded everything. And that's what really powers growth marketing. And to me, the definition of growth marketing is being able to figure out how to pull levers that are going to drive customer acquisition and growth of existing customers. And for me, in blitzscaling, one of the things we point out is when it comes to marketing, you're going to have to develop that kind of growth marketing capability as the company gets bigger, because it is a core part of your distribution strategy. And what we've seen, and this is a trend that's been happening over the past five years, and it occurs more and more, is in order for this to, to happen, marketing is fundamentally changed. Instead of a marketing department that then goes over to another engineering department to make requests, you increasingly see engineering resources that are directly attached to marketing. We see growth teams that are cross-functional, that have the ability to really quickly iterate and make changes as opposed to having marketing be in a separate silo. So um, if you think about the different, you, you used a, a, a family, tribe, city, you know, use that scale. When I think about um, a company growing up, you know, I think about first the startup, Mm -hmm. And uh, the startup looks for a product market fit. They become a change up. They're trying to figure it out. And then once they figured it out, they become a scale up. And then if they can scale up, they become grown ups. When I first started in marketing, in digital marketing, 
people always wanted to hire someone who had experience in their trade, in their industry. But nowadays, do you think that blitzscaling companies would be better served with a marketer that had experience growing a company from their stage to the next stage, then industry focus? Yes. And this is a core insight, which is the needs of the company are more stage dependent than they are industry dependent. And so let's say you're growing a company in a particular industry. You're like, oh, I found this person who knows everything about the industry, but they've only operated at that grown up stage or that nation stage, depending on which terminology you use. Well, they're not going to be real helpful for your startup. It's much better to get someone who's a great startup marketer who can hopefully learn about your industry. And the other thing that we always say about this is the most important thing is that they be able to get you to that next stage. If they can keep going after that, that's a bonus. But the most important thing you got to worry about is getting to that next stage. That is already a huge challenge. So hiring someone who will be useful to you in two years, guess what? That's not a good idea. Hire someone who's going to be useful to you right now. So, Chris, you invest actively in startups right now. Um, how do you decide which startups to invest in? So, this is very self-serving, but of course, we use the principles of blitzscaling. So, at Blitzscaling Ventures, we look at the key growth factors and growth limiters of blitzscaling and evaluate the companies based on that. And those are things like, is this a winner-take-most market? Do they have a scalable distribution strategy? Is this a big global market? Do they have high gross margins? Do they have product market fit? Are they able to scale the operations? Are they able to scale the organization? So we look at all of these different things and we score them on a scale of one to 10. Then we apply our secret formula to process those numbers. And what we kick out at the other end is a score on a scale of one to 100, where 80 or above is blitz scalable. And those are the companies we focus on. Now that's just a filter. After that, we actually wanna talk with the CEO and really understand the business. But we find that filtering down to just those companies that have the potential for exponential growth is a good way to look for investments. Now, in your January newsletter, you wrote about some of the companies that either you're advising or have invested in, and you wrote about a company uh, actually in my backyard called Storyboard. And what they do are these sort of private internal podcasts for a closed audience. Uh, how are they doing? How is that investment? Or are you, a, are you an investor in that company? And, and if so, how's it coming? So I'm not an investor in that company yet. I hope to be, and I've made that very clear to the company. Obviously, we can only invest when there is a round open. But Storyboard is a company where I really do feel like it has enormous potential. I have been saying for years and years that there needs to be an enterprise podcasting tool because podcasts are such a powerful communications tool. In the book Blitzscaling, we talk about the need for moving from dialogue to broadcasting. As your company grows, you as a founder need the ability to really communicate and reach and drive your thoughts into the minds of your team. And it gets harder and harder to do when you can't see them face to face. And podcasting is this really intimate medium that creates a sense of connection. But of course, it's difficult to do that with a public podcast, right? You can't talk about all the issues facing your company if anyone out there, including your competitors, could listen in. So that's where Storyboard comes in. And I'm a big fan of what they are doing. It's something that I've been telling people should exist for years, and I'm so glad somebody is doing it. I've also spoken with the founder there, uh, JP, and he is just a, a brilliant guy, really product focused, really thinking also about distribution. And I'm just a big fan. 
Professor Galloway on his podcast said recently, uh, you know what? The market's hot. Real estate's hot. Enjoy it while it lasts because it's going to end sooner or later. What are your feelings on the economy? It's kind of where we're at right now. And give us, uh, if you would, in a nutshell, uh, sort of your economic outlook for 2021, for the remainder of 2021. Well, <clears throat> Prof G is both brilliant and a brilliant showman. I tip my cap to him. I listen to his Pivot podcast with Kara Swisher on a regular basis. I just love that guy to death. So I am a huge, huge Scott Galloway fan. Now, in terms of his evaluation of the economy, I largely agree. So my outlook for 2021 is heavily positive. I think that there is a lot of money being splashed out and going into the economy, and that's going to tend to drive asset prices upwards. I also think think that we're very fortunate that our scientists have developed these amazing vaccines for COVID-19. And I did a calculation back at the beginning of March, so a, a month ago, where I made the prediction, which at the time seemed bold, and now everyone would say, wow, this is pretty obvious, that for most of us, the worries of COVID-19 would be gone by June 1st. And the reason is on March 2nd, people are like, we can't get the vaccine. I'm like, no, the supplies are coming. The deliveries are already scheduled. This is all going to work itself out. You just have to be patient. And I think we are at the point, at least here in the state of California, where all adults will be eligible as of April 15th. Now, that doesn't mean we'll all get vaccinated that day. That's going to be a little tough. It'll take a little bit longer. But I think it's quite likely, Eric, that you and I, if we haven't been vaccinated yet, will be fully vaccinated and protected by June 1st. And I do think it will take a little bit of time for people to basically overcome the trauma of COVID-19, just like when COVID-19 came in and we were denying that it was going to be a problem, even though there were clear signs. When it goes away, we will be denying the fact that it's gone away. And that's just human nature. But I do think, and I strongly predict, that by September of this year, the economy will be in full boom. It will be a massive rebound recovery. Everyone should make sure that they are prepared for enormous jumps in demand, unless, of course, you happen to be something that is purely a pandemic play. I do think that someday the piper will have to be paid. So we are printing money, borrowing money, injecting into the economy. That has to come from somewhere. Someday we will have to raise taxes. Someday we will have to get some of that money back. The business cycle has not been revoked. So uh, I don't know exactly when. I have been very unsuccessful at predicting it. I thought that the business cycle would come to end in 2016, 2017. It didn't happen. It kept going, it kept going, it kept going. And even the pandemic doesn't seem to have done it. So I have been wrong way too often for anyone to listen to my predictions about this. But rest assured, someday we will have to pay it back and that debt will be difficult to pay. Chris Ye of Blitzscaling Ventures, it has been a real treat. If the next... Jeff Bezos is listening to this podcast, looking for some seed money. How can they get a hold of you? Well, the way that people can best get a hold of me, as is true for almost all investors, is to get an introduction. I am a very active LinkedIn user. You can easily find me. You probably have mutual connections with me. And if I accepted their connection request, I actually do know them. I don't just randomly accept people who I have no idea who they are. So you should be able to get an introduction. I'm also a very friendly guy, and people tend to reach out to me as well. So by all means, please do reach out. Just recognize that the nature of the VC game is, you know, there may be thousands of companies you look at over the course of a year. Most VCs are only going to do a couple of deals a year. So the odds are against you. But to quote 
the great movie Dumb and Dumber, so you're telling me there's a chance. To master B2B lead generation, you can listen to the first chapter of my new book, The Digital Pivot, for free at digitalpivotbook.com.